Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of the Planet Pantry Podcast, a show about the pantry staples that people reach for every day to make the foods they love. This week, we're exploring teff, the grain which sits at the center of Ethiopian and Eritrean cuisine in the form of injera. This is a long, complicated, and often controversial history, so bear with me as I try to do it justice. In the end, injera and any other beloved food is exactly what those who possess it want it to be. The history is theirs, the true significance is theirs, and the recipe is theirs. As we'll see in a bit, people have tried to steal this historic food, and have even tried to claim it as their own, but as we'll also see, the people of this amazing region don't take kindly to foreign invaders trying to take what's sacred to them. As a foreigner myself, all I can really do is offer a little bit of context to the history and the process behind this unique bread and the flour from which it's made. The goal is to give you a quick introduction to what it is and where it comes from. The prolific Ethiopian and Eritrean diasporas have brought their food all around the world and it's quickly becoming popular, so I think it's a good time to give a little bit of historical context to this single item that you'll encounter in so many experiences at these great restaurants. And please, go to these restaurants. This is such a severely underrated cuisine. I might be a little biased because the general profile of Ethiopian restaurants falls right into what I love, but for real, this is amazing food. Just look up the menu of a restaurant in your area and see for yourself. And maybe after this, you can go into your first, second, or fifth visit with a newfound respect and admiration for your plate. Quick disclaimer though, I will not be going into the complicated and nuanced conflict currently playing out in the Tigray region. I think it's important that the world knows what's going on there, and I will mention it at the end of the episode, and I'll provide some resources to learn about what's going on there, and some resources and some information on how you can help in the show notes and on my social media. So without further ado, grab some injera, some wat, and some tibs, and let's get into it. In 1974, people around the world were roused by the discovery of what were at the time the oldest remains of an ancestor to humans ever found. The remains are believed to belong to Australopithecus afarensis, which was dubbed by her finders as Lucy. She walked upright, she likely used tools, and her remains were estimated to be around 3.2 million years old. More recently, examples of Australopithecus anamensis have been found and dated back to around 3.8 million years ago, but both of these sets of remains were found in Ethiopia. And Lucy's name in the Amharic language is Dinkanesh, which roughly translates to you are marvelous. And marvelous she was. Dinkanesh helped us build our family tree, connecting us with other species of Australopithecus and Homo, the family which we all belong to today as Homo sapiens sapiens. It's widely recognized that humanity began in Africa, and a couple million years after the life of Dinkanesh, other ancestors of ours moved out of Africa and into Europe and Asia. These periods of occasional migration, mostly based on factors like population growth and climate change, eventually culminated in what some call the recent African origin model, which is the most agreed-upon theory of human expansion. It states that we sapiens and a few other homo species began to move out of Africa about 200,000 years ago, and by about 50,000 years ago they had reached much of southern Eurasia. 
it's impossible to say definitively exactly where our ancestors really originated from, let alone where we Homo sapiens first appeared. But according to an article in the journal Nature, which I've linked in the notes, Ethiopia is the current frontrunner for the title of Cradle of Humanity. Two sets of Homo sapiens remains were found along the Omo River in southwestern Ethiopia, and they date back to around 195,000 years ago. Ethiopia is a landlocked country today, residing in the Horn of Africa and cut off from the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden by Djibouti and Eritrea. But it is through the coast of the Horn and the Bab al-Mandab Strait that the people are said to have crossed to modern-day Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula to begin their journeys to many of our current homes. From this point of arrival on the southern Arabian Peninsula, we made it all the way across the coast of southern Persia, India, and ultimately to the islands of Southeast Asia. And from there, people went on to colonize the world as we know it today. But many people stayed in the region that is Ethiopia today, and they would help to build some of the earliest civilizations. They would build a unique and amazing culture, and they would successfully resist European colonization during the scramble for Africa. The first major civilization in this region was Damat. Not to be confused with the later kingdom of Damat, this early civilization was founded in what is now the Tigray region, just south of what was at the time Nubian Kush. Damat was pretty amazing. It likely grew with influence from the Sabians of the southern Arabian Peninsula, but quickly grew to become its own unique civilization as it dominated ivory and incense trade in the region. Notably, it also skipped right over bronze and copper-based tools, and its capital of Yeha quickly became an early center for ironworking in eastern Africa. Following the fall of Damat to unknown circumstances, the region was succeeded by smaller successor kingdoms until the rise of the Aksum Empire around the 1st century AD. Famously, in the 3rd century, the Persian prophet Mani said that the most powerful lands of his time were Rome, Persia, China, and Aksum. This great kingdom controlled the heavy flow of trade between Rome and India, among others, through the Red Sea at their peak controlling lands on both the African and Arabian sides of the strait. They built a powerful navy to control the very strait that had allowed humanity to cross over to the Arabian Peninsula and ultimately to Eastern Asia and beyond. This navy also established a wide network of trade frequently dealing with great trading points from the Byzantine Empire to Ceylon or modern-day Sri Lanka. They made their own coins as well, and in the 3rd or 4th century, these coins started to be minted with a depiction of a cross, following the conversion of the ruler Azana to Christianity. Ethiopian Christianity is pretty unique, with some seeing the land as a second Israel, and this is compounded by the belief that the Ark of the Covenant, which houses the Ten Commandments, has been kept at a church in the northern highlands guarded by a single monk. This would set the stage for modern Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity and for one of Aksum's most remembered rulers, King Caleb, who is sometimes known as Saint Alisban. He gained sainthood from the church by defending early Christian communities on the Arabian Peninsula, putting himself at odds with the Jewish rulers of that region. Caleb frequently intervened in the southern parts of the peninsula to maintain control over his territory there but this overextension is often seen as one of the last big moves by the Great Empire, and it slowly began to decline over the next few hundred years. This all came to a point with Yodit Godit, 
sometimes referred to as Esato in Amaric, meaning fire. Not much is known about her, but she is definitely a legendary character in this story and definitely deserving of a name like Esato. Some believe her to be aligned with a native Ethiopian religion, but most people seem to think that she was the queen of a southern group of Ethiopian Jews, perhaps the Falesha, which exists today and proudly claim Yodit as one of their own. Regardless of where she came from though, she rode fierce campaigns on horseback which decimated the Axum Empire and ultimately put her on the throne for four decades. And that rule was passed to her descendants all the way until Yekuno Amlak took power and established the Solomonic Dynasty. A dynasty which claimed direct descent from the biblical King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. This dynasty would rule the region as Abyssinia until 1974. It would re-establish Christianity as the primary religion and resist colonization during the so-called Scramble for Africa. A lot happened in those 700 years and although I couldn't possibly cover it all in this quick summary, at the end of this segment I'll give you some good resources to dive deeper. But an important event during this period occurred during a dark time for the entire continent of Africa. A time with ripples all the way up to our modern era. In the 19th century, European powers were snatching up as much land as they could in order to take advantage of African resources. This did untold damage to the continent. We're still dealing with the scars of this rampant display of imperialism and unapologetic raiding of huge swaths of land as well as the botched reconstruction of the region after the fact. But if you look at the color-coded maps floating around the internet of different regions colonized by different European powers, you'll see the entire continent filled with bright colors representing France, Britain, Italy, and Belgium among others, but you'll also notice a big Ethiopia-shaped gray blob right on the horn of Eastern Africa. That's because during this entire period, Ethiopia managed to escape colonialism, and that wasn't for lack of effort on the part of the Europeans. King Menelik II of Ethiopia had been bolstering his country's defenses and international relationships through trade of, among other things, modern arms with European powers, including Italy itself, and feeling like he had a solid grasp on power over his territory, he agreed to sign the Treaty of Wikale. Menelik was led to believe that this treaty would afford him Italian assistance in communicating with other European powers to grow relationships. But the Italians had intentionally made the translated language in the treaty confusing and claimed that it actually gave them full control of Ethiopian trade and communication, effectively making them a protectorate of Italy. When Menelik denounced this treaty, the Italians of course prepared to push into the country for an invasion. They were confident. They had nearly 30,000 well-equipped Italian and Eritrean soldiers ready to fight and they believed that their technology and strategic capabilities were far above those of the Ethiopians. But apparently they had forgotten that they themselves as well as their allies had been trading weapons to the Ethiopians. They also totally overlooked the independence of the various groups throughout Ethiopia who really don't like to be controlled. This leads to problems today as a centrally controlled government struggles to exert control on the diverse set of groups that make up the Ethiopian population across a diverse geographical landscape. But when, in the 19th century, these groups had a common enemy to fight, that led to the inspiring scene of 196,000 men gathering from around Ethiopia in Addis Ababa to fight for their nation's sovereignty. 
and over half of these forces were armed with modern rifles and another 8,000 on horseback made this a serious force to reckon with and over the next six years, from 1889 to 1895, Italy would struggle to push forward and would suffer a series of losses. The Ethiopian forces pushed the Italians back to the town of Michele and held them under siege for 45 days from the nearby town of Adwa. Running low on rations, the Italians desperately decided to attack under the cover of night on February 29, 1896. But spies had informed Kin Menelik that they were coming and the Ethiopians surprised the Italian forces before they were ready to attack, breaking their formation and forcing a chaotic battle in which thousands were lost on both sides. But this really drove the message that the Ethiopians wanted to convey home, that they would not be conquered. This was an inspiring event to the other African nations which had already been colonized and one of the proudest moments in Ethiopian history. Following the rule of Menelik, the second Solomonic dynasty would enter its twilight years with one of its last great rulers, Haile Selassie. As the first Ethiopian ruler to travel extensively abroad, Selassie was known as a great modernizer to the nation. He worked hard to modernize Ethiopian governmental systems and infrastructure, but his work would be interrupted in 1935 with the return of the Italians. This time, the Italians did gain a foothold in the nation and Selassie, despite leading a strong charge against them, was forced into exile. He would return after Ethiopia regained control just five or six years later, but he would have to fight to regain power and his leadership would never quite regain the majesty which it held before. And in 1974, the military would stage a coup, ending the Solomonic dynasty. But we still see the effects of Selassie's work today as Ethiopia serves as the seat of the growing African Union, which he set the groundwork for, and as the nation continues to grow as an international power. Selassie also lives on in the Afrocentric Jamaican Rastafari movement, which takes its title from a name used by Selassie before becoming emperor. And many believers see him as a second coming of Jesus, or at least as a very important prophet. This was a super cursory overview of thousands of years of what could be one of the most complex and dynamic world histories, but I hope that it gives you a thirst to learn more and that it shines a light on the legendary people who gave us the amazing pantry staple that we're discussing this week. If you want to learn more about Ethiopia and her history, I highly recommend a new podcast that is only in its fifth episode but is incredibly well researched and presented. It's called Tariq, and they seem to be available on all major streaming platforms, and they can be found on social media. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Tariq podcast, as well as some other resources for more on Ethiopian history. It's also important to understand that Ethiopia is made up of several ethnic groups, each with their own distinct versions of these histories and separate histories of their own. So if you truly want to do your understanding justice, I also encourage you to learn about them. I made this historical overview longer than I normally would because it concerns a history that's often overlooked in Western educations, but fascinating and glorious nonetheless. And this is important because Ethiopian food is going to be one of the big trendy food movements in the next decade. I feel very confident about that. So I thought that it would be valuable to learn at least the basic history of this amazing region which is about to give us so much good food. And on that note, let's finally get into some Tef and Injera right after this.
So finally to teff. Teff is a unique grain, and I honestly believe that it will become pretty commonplace in the next couple of decades. It is one of the oldest grains harvested by humanity, having been cultivated for the first time around 6,000 years ago. It falls into the Aragrostis family of love grasses, which can be found on all inhabited continents around the world, but teff is uniquely valued for its tiny seeds. The tiniest, in fact, of any cultivated crop at under one millimeter each. The name teff is even derived from the Amharic word lost, referring to the difficulty of storing these seeds without leaving even the tiniest escape route from their container. It comes in several varieties and the biggest differentiation is between white and brown or red teff. White is generally preferred and can sometimes be a bit of a status symbol. It has the most rigorous growing conditions and does best in the Ethiopian highlands. Red or brown teff are generally cheaper, more widely grown, and the biggest practical difference is the darker varieties tend to have a higher iron content. So they're actually a little more nutritious with places which consume more red or brown teff suffering from fewer cases of iron deficiency on average. One of the main reasons given for the decline of the Axum Kingdom was climate change, which led to severe droughts throughout the empire. Although this has been a theme in Ethiopian history, the region actually has a pretty diverse climate. In the lowlands of the Somali and Afar regions, in the eastern part of the country, you'll find some of the hottest and most arid conditions on Earth, often vying for the hottest temperature record with Death Valley in California. This isn't the entire story of the nation, however. Ethiopia has crazy geography with highlands, lowlands, mountains, plains, tons of rivers, valleys, and much more. And all of these regions together provide a very diverse landscape. But this landscape and the climate which impacts its people have changed dynamically over the short history of humanity, and teff is the crop which allows people to enjoy delicious food no matter where they are. Partly because of a relative lack of human intervention, Teff has remained incredibly resilient to a number of factors. It is perfectly happy growing in arid desert climates, and it can be grown anywhere from sea level all the way up to 3200 meters. It obviously does best somewhere in between these extremes, but the wide windows that it allows itself in terms of temperature, elevation, moisture, etc., make it reliable in many exceptional environments. Its main wild ancestor, Aragrostis pilosa, can also be grown quickly in tough environments and it's edible by people, but because of the difficulty involved in harvesting pilosa, this is generally only done in times of desperation. But don't mistake this as a cereal that is only grown out of desperation or because of the extreme environments that it calls home. Its resilience is very impressive, but it is valued for so many other reasons and those are why we're going to see a lot more of it outside of Ethiopia and Eritrea very soon. Teff has been lauded by many Western publications as the next superfood, with many likening its newfound popularity to that of quinoa around the start of the 2010s, and that's because of how amazingly nutrient-dense it is. For one thing, since the seeds are so tiny, they are almost never hulled, so teff is almost exclusively consumed as a whole grain, which helps its case, but even forgetting that, it checks all of the nutritive boxes. Compared to white rice, it has seven times the minerals, four times the proteins, three times the vitamins, and three times the carbohydrates. It is also extremely rich in essential amino acids, and it holds the title that all new superfoods must hold to make it competitive, gluten-free. 
there's a lot of polarization around the term gluten-free, with some who really need gluten-free alternatives, some who would prefer to cut back on their intake of gluten, and some who thinks that anything that's gluten-free or light in gluten is weak and inferior. But the fact is that whether we need an alternative, want one, or don't care, the more grains with which we have to make the delicious foods, the better, right? I'll probably do an episode on gluten and the flours which make the most and the least of this often muddled and confused protein structure. But alright, Teff is awesome, so where can I get some? Why hasn't Trader Joe's started selling it? And when will we see Teff bowls at our local superfood cafes? Well, it's not that simple, and to understand why, let's compare Teff to the last big superfood crop, quinoa. Quinoa was a pretty amazing case. It really was and still is a prime example of our increasingly global food world elevating something from a relatively local staple to a global phenomenon in a matter of a couple of years. It's been used as a case study in the debates for and against a globalized economy, and it had many positive impacts as well as some negative ones which Ethiopia is trying to avoid with TEF. We'll do an episode on quinoa someday, but it was, similarly to Tef, a staple for the people of early Andean civilizations, and it's been cultivated for about as long as Tef. When it exploded in popularity about 10 years ago, it made farmers in this region rich. It provided a new industry to developing economies and a delicious, nutritious food to developed economies. It was a win for many except for one key group, those who historically ate quinoa. The people who relied on this staple crop for many generations saw one of their most important food sources skyrocket in price pretty much overnight. In Ethiopia, about 32% of agricultural land is taken up by teff, with the rest mostly being for wheat, barley, corn, sorghum, and millet. It is by far the most popular crop, and that is saying a lot in a country where agriculture accounts for 80% of the workforce and 50% of the GDP. Sure, if TEF were to be exported without much regulation, it would be great for the 48 or so commercial farms which produce it, and the taxes from those sales would surely be welcomed by the government, but in a country that's historically grappled with food supply issues, the Ethiopian government is approaching this potentially lucrative industry with caution. In 2006, Ethiopia banned the export of TEF altogether as prices were already rising, and after the quinoa boom of 2013, the government announced that they would start to explore exports in a controlled way, by only exporting teff flour and not allowing exports to affect internal demand. Teff is also pretty tricky to grow and especially difficult to harvest with labor being a big factor in how it'll scale to be a big global crop. I was recently talking to the owner of an Ethiopian restaurant here in Seattle and they provide injera the bread made from teff flour, to restaurants around the city. We were talking about teff grown in North America. Many states, including Idaho, Arizona, and Texas, have started growing teff, and they compete with Ethiopian exporters for the growing demand from the Ethiopian and Eritrean diasporas, and those in their new homes who love their food. But he mentioned that a large bag of teff flour from Ethiopia costs around $25, while a bag of American teff flour can go for nearly $40, and he explained that this was because of the high labor costs in America. Ethiopia has one of the best economic growth rates in Africa, at around 9%, and because of its focus on agriculture, their economy has been relatively safe from the effects of the pandemic. But conflicts like the one in the Tigray region right now 
which has put around 2 million people in some phase of famine in the past year, remind Ethiopia that it needs to prioritize food security for its own population over profitable industry. But conflict aside, let's take a look at what people do with this amazing grain right after this. So at the end of the day, teff is a cereal grain, so its applications are really endless, but the vast majority of teff is used in one key product, and that is injera. Injera is the amazing and almost unavoidable staple of Ethiopian and Eritrean cuisine. So let's start by taking a look at how it's made. The first step is, as always, gathering your ingredients. Teff is made with a pretty simple batter consisting of a starter, water, and teff flour. Other flours are sometimes subbed in to cut cost, since teff can be pretty expensive, but ideally 100% teff flour should be used. The other main ingredient in injera is ersho, or the fermentation starter. That's right, you thought that this episode wouldn't involve fermentation? Well that just goes to show you that everyone around the world applies fermentation to their pantry staples to some degree. Ersho is meant to give injera that famous sour taste through lacto-fermentation while also getting some leavening from wild yeast. The most common starter is a little bit of active batter from the previous batch, but you can also maintain a starter in the same way that you would for a wheat-based sourdough, and if you do it this way, you're looking for a good amount of foam on top of the starter and the pooling of some murky water on top. I'll link a great resource for the starter and a good injera recipe in the show notes with the sources. But as we all know, bread is all about finesse. It's easy to throw water, flour, and starter together, loosely follow a process, and get something passable. But to get it right, you need two things. Attention to detail and experience. As amateur injera makers, all we can do is pay extra close attention to every step and every detail of what we're doing, and over time and with many batches, we'll eventually get an eye for the finer details of what makes good injera. This is the same everywhere. A French baker can take one good look at your baguette and tell immediately if it's great, garbage, or somewhere in between. Same goes for tortillas, paratha, or langoche. People take a lot of pride in their bread and can not only see the tiny physical imperfections in your product, but they can also understand how those seemingly insignificant imperfections can drastically affect the bread. Injera is no different and one of the key steps in getting the right texture, which can be noticed by the holes or eyes that dot the surface of the bread, is called absit. So you'll first make the dough, combining water, starter, and teff flour and mixing it according to your preferred method. Allow everything to ferment for one to three days, depending on your local environment, and then remove a small amount of the batter and cook it in some water until it obtains a pudding-like consistency. Let it cool and add it back into the batter. This absit process is similar to the Asian tangzhong method of pre-cooking flour in order to arrange the starches so that they trap water better, leading to a softer, moister bread in the end. But now that you have your batter, all you have to do is cook it. But that might be easier said than done. If you've ever cooked Indian dosas, then great, your training will guide you here. But if you've never done anything along those lines, you might need to try a couple of times. Depending, of course, on your equipment. Traditionally, this would be done on a mitad, a well-seasoned, flat and round clay stovetop over a fire. 
but many people use nonstick pans, crepe pans, or even well-seasoned cast iron. If you have the right tools for the job, namely a very flat, smooth surface to cook on, then you should be fine. Another important factor is, of course, patience, as anyone who's made anything from a dosa to a pancake before will tell you. You just have to wait until it's ready to be flipped, but with injera, you don't flip it, so that's one scary skip that you can forget about here. There are many tips and tricks here, and everyone learns what's right for them with experience, but the method that I've seen work for many is to pour your batter onto your surface at a pretty low, friendly temperature, and to cook it until the majority of those eyes form on the surface. And once it's almost done, just cover it for a minute or two to let the steam finish it off, and hopefully, your injera will slide right off the pan, ready to be topped with a generous variety of delicious Ethiopian dishes. Now, I was born in Canada, I live in the United States, and I didn't try this food until about seven years ago. So although I do love Ethiopian and Eritrean cuisine, I can't speak for the real cultural significance of this stuff. I'll link some great writing from Ethiopian chefs in the show notes if you want to get a better feel for what makes injera special to them, but I can speak to why I love it so much. The brilliance of injera is how well suited it is to its task. With injera, you get a lot of spicy, stewy, meaty things, and personally, when I eat a lot of those kinds of foods, I like something pickled or maybe a slightly acidic drink or some lime juice or something to cut through everything just a little bit. And the characteristic sourness from injera's lacto-fermentation provides exactly that effect. And that's not even the best part. The best part is the texture of the bread, and the texture is why I believe that despite the production hurdles ahead, teff and teff flour are going to be embraced around the world. One of the biggest challenges to gluten-free products is the amazing, stretchy texture that gluten provides, and that's why gluten-free cakes, breads, and other treats tend to be a little dense and crumbly. You don't get that stretch from the dough, and you also don't get the nice rise because without the gluten structure, things tend to struggle to hold the gas produced by fermentation. That's all general, I don't know a whole lot about this, and I will do an episode on gluten alternatives someday. But this isn't the case with teff. Injera is beautifully bouncy, stretchy, and it rises well to make those nice eyes. It might even have more potential for stretch than similar wheat-based products. But without that overt chewiness that comes with some alternatives. Again, I'm not going to try and explain this yet, maybe someday, but in the meantime, I've linked a paper that seems to explain it in the show notes. But this is also a reason for the history-heavy episode of this podcast. As the world embraces Tef and all its potential, we can't forget injera. And we shouldn't. It's delicious. Too often have we gotten excited about a flashy new thing that's been co-opted by Western chefs from another culture, and we focus on that chef or that interpretation and forget about where it came from. And injera isn't even the only application for teff. Again, the vast majority of teff goes to injera, and injera provides two-thirds of the country's protein, but it can be used for so much more. The grass itself makes a great building material. You can make a very nutritious porridge with it, and it's also often used in the production of tela. Tela is sort of one of those low-alcohol content beers that we've discussed in previous episodes. Most cultures around the world have something similar, but honestly, tela sounds especially delicious. It's made by fermenting a mix of grains, most often teff and sorghum, but a variety of others can be used in tandem alongside spices for extra flavor. 
Brewers also employ the sanitize by smoke method that you see in a few places around the world, which sees them cleaning their brewing vessels over a fire fueled by aromatic woods. This might impart a smoky flavor, and a smoky, spiced Tef beer sounds amazing to me, so I'm gonna have to try this someday. I hope that Tef makes it into the mainstream, and that Ethiopian farmers and the Ethiopian people will get to reap all the benefits from giving it to us. But I also hope that we never forget this amazing grain and the bread made from it, and I hope that rather than pushing them aside, we can shine a spotlight on the diverse and fascinating culture of these amazing peoples and that we can do everything with some respect. So get out there, there are thousands of Ethiopian restaurants around the world, and the people who operate them are just waiting to share their amazing foods with you. Try it, maybe learn to make some at home, but always remember the stories of the amazing nation and its people who gave us this great gift. As always, if you have any corrections, notes, or ideas for future episodes, reach out to me through the links in the show notes. Also consider checking out my Patreon where I post some extra content and host a Discord server with which I hope to build a community for people to discuss and share their favorite pantry staples. I hope to see you all next week, and until then, go check out an Ethiopian or Eritrean restaurant in your area, they'd be happy to have you. The brilliance of injera is how well suited it is to its task. With injera, 